I think the idea that fear of leaving money on the table is a very real thing. But I think over time, you get a confidence of knowing that you've built a business and you're doing things right and you're good enough at what you're doing to say, no, no, I can pass on this because something else will come through the door and I know who my customer is. Hey Feasters, welcome to a bonus episode of Live in the Feast Season 5. I'm Jason, aka Rez, helping you improve your business by having a conversation with someone who's been there, had success, and built a business designed around the life they want to live. That's Live in the Feast. Adam Piernal is an author of a book called Specific, How Brands Draw Inspiration from a World That Doesn't Want Any More. He's written a couple of other books, but he's passionate about helping connect people to what they love. His first book called Underthink It is taught in universities and Fortune 100 companies about marketing. Since this season is all about selling your service, I wanted to bring Adam onto the show because you are going to hear how passionate he is about connecting people together whether that's helping businesses find their clients through marketing or perfect strangers helping each other to accomplish something they both want. Ultimately, being able to sell your service comes down to how well you can connect with your clients, figuring out what makes them tick and what's important to them. That's what Adam is an expert in. In this episode, we dive into the framework to define characteristics of your ideal client to gain insight and context to them. That's what has been the biggest differentiator in my own business. We also talk about how saying no to a lead can result in a win-win for everybody. We also talk about how to gather up those characteristics of your clients and what to do with them and the unconventional way in which he wrote this book. I know you'll enjoy this conversation between Adam and myself, so let's dive in. This episode is brought to you by Feast, the premium online coaching and community designed for developers, designers, marketers, and freelancers like you wanting to specialize their business and build recurring revenue that is both profitable and sustainable. Today's market is ever-changing, and yesterday's advice won't cut it. Feast members get exclusive access to the roadmap and training library, which includes everything you need to niche down, build recurring revenue, and become that go-to expert for your services. That together with the monthly roundup calls, exclusive workshops, expert chit chat, and our Slack community, you'll have everything you need to build a business around the life of your dreams. If you're serious about not competing on price and having those clients that respect you and your expertise, then join Feast today. Head over to feastcourse.com. If you use the code SPECIFIC at checkout, you'll receive 15% off of the annual membership price. Feasters, season five is all about selling your service, and I'm excited to have joined me today as the co-host for today's show is Adam Pierno. Welcome, Adam. 
Hey, thank you so much for having me, Raz. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it as well. I appreciate your time. Adam is a teacher, a mentor, and author. He's written two books, the first called Underthink It, which is now taught in universities, Fortune 100 companies, and his second book, which is out right now, and the basically why I wanted to have him on the show to share a little bit more insights into it is called Specific, How Brands Draw Inspiration from a World That Doesn't Want Anymore. I wanted to bring Adam onto the show to share with us his thoughts and insights into the consumption of information as we build our small businesses so that we can learn from that and actually apply it to our ideal customers and clients. Adam, before we dive into all that goodness, can you can you share a little bit with us why you do what you do? Yeah, I mean, I am just very interested in the way ideas happen and the way people think about things. And I'm fortunate in my job and in my commute, <laughs> I guess, that I get to put a lot of energy and thinking into background processing why these things happen. So. Um, I take a lot of notes. I write a lot of words that, that some get published and some don't that I just keep for myself uh, about how these things happen and why we, why consumer culture takes the shape that it does and how we convert the things we consume into outputs and turn them into ideas that other people can take on and build on. So um, I'm just driven by human behavior. And obviously as a marketer, uh, a lot of it is channeled into advertising, marketing and, and communication like that. But in my personal work, it's, it's really more about trying to work out for myself some of those bridges. Mm. You know what I mean? And then it, sometimes if I think it's good enough to share, I'll share it. Uh, in the case of the, of the books, it worked out twice that I was like, okay, this is, this is someone else will get value out of this. There's a lot of times where I'm like, well, this helped me, but I don't think anyone else will want it. This will stay as a Word doc or as a Google doc. <laughs> it stays, stays private. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so what was the point at which maybe it was early on in your, your life or maybe in your career that you started to think along those lines and think about human behavior in that way? Yeah. You know, I started as a, as an art director in the advertising world. So art director, designer, and I was always interested in the creative brief. So that part of the process that in old traditional agencies where I came up, it was handed to the creative team. It was assigned to you. Solve this problem. We've worked out all this strategy stuff. And then what you would come up with is a secondary insight that would say, oh, well, based on what the brief says, we know that people think about donuts like this or coffee like that or whatever the product is. And I just got more and more interested in writing the brief and getting, getting to that primary insight and really understanding how to truly make a connection and, and then just reading psychology books and taking in papers and observing and really trying to think about what makes people tick and what, what moves them. And then of course you get to feel the guilt of, well, now am I just exploiting these things? You know, is that what I'm trying to do? So I try not to do that. Um, and, and, uh, specific is, you know, there's some great books out there that get into that psychology and get into system one thinking and show you, Hey, you can tap into it this way, that way, this way. Specific is a very fun ride that does not do that. Um, but it does, there's the insights and then there's kind of fun demonstrations of how those things play out. But I, I'm out of the, uh, exploitation of people's psychology business. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It's, it's gross. I can't, I have kids. I, I <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's funny. Like I went to an engineering school. Oh yeah. Okay. That was, uh, and 
I went in there, I mean, at, through high school, I thought I was going to be a mechanical engineer. And that's kind of where my mind was. So for you, it's like about how things work. Partly, yes. And what I found out was that in through the university, I, I went in there as a CS major. I really didn't know what I was going to do with my life at that point in time, you know, like, and as a, a CS major in the mid to late 90s, that's where the internet started to kind of bubble up a little bit. And, you know, it, what I was learning was a lot of hardcore development, kind of coding, compiling and assembly, like real machine language type stuff. But yet that there was right. this other thing on the internet and where it was like instant gratification, like you change something, you refresh the page and it was there. It's like, oh, that's cool. I don't have to wait. But as a part of that, I had to take humanities courses. So I wound up taking a lot of psychology courses and finding a real interest in how humans behave. And I didn't know that that was the path that I was wind up using the most out of school. But I wound up getting a minor in psychology just because I kept taking so many of those classes. And I had no idea until I actually got the piece of paper that actually declared that I was a minor in psychology. Oh, that's so funny. But for me- You're just pulled by the interest. Exactly. And like, just like, oh, really? So that's how the brain works a little bit. And that's how human feelings are and how they sway people into make decisions or hinder them in making decisions or whatever. And so that really, I mean, over the my 20 year career, I mean, I'm like, Everything, everything stems back to human behavior. And, and I've fallen in this sweet spot at this point now where like yourself, like there are times where I'm like, am I just exploiting this? Like, <laughs> I know, like, I know. But, but it, you were there at the perfect time because it probably wasn't visible yet to people from the outside how psychology and CS were going to be connected, right? Right. I mean, I started as a classics major and uh, did two years of that and then realized like, I want to have a job when I graduate. I don't want to stay in academia what do I do? And so I switched from, from classics to calm and, you know, graduated with a degree in advertising, but I would, I'm still apply what I learned in this, this curriculum that I took on for the first two years of these major, these classic stories and the, the architecture of the stories and why people were writing the things they were and the, all the machinery behind this, the, uh, the text that we still have. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, I fell in love with e-commerce so early on before Amazon was even there because of the human behavior. Like, hey, if I shape the heat checkout page like this, because at that time it was like we had to get over the hurdle of somebody putting their credit card into their yes. comp like computer. Remember right? this? Like, so yeah. like we had to do all of these little from a technical perspective, we could do whatever we wanted, but we needed to place certain elements of the page in the right order and all of these other things to make people feel comfortable, right? It feels like a million years ago when I was afraid to put my credit card in. Exactly. Does he not? <laughs> exactly right. Now I just wave the credit card around and just tap it against the screen <laughs> and it sends things that I'm not even sure what they are to my house and I like return them. And exactly. And to that, I mean, so in the book, you talk about, you know, really focusing in on the insight of somebody, the, mo the motivation behind what the person does. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Oh, for sure. So, so what you're trying to line up, I mean, it, it, classic marketing is figuring out the habit of the person that you're trying to reach and what drives them as it relates to your brand or product, right? And I, I try not to talk about, I, I try to make a distinction in specific about the difference between companies and brands. 
because you don't have to be a brand to be a company. But what, sometimes when we're in marketing, we refer to everything as a brand. But I would argue that there's a lot of companies that are just, or freelancers that are just, I'm a company of one, I'm doing my thing, I'm not a brand, I don't worry about that. Brand is what sometimes can pull people towards the company if it's not solution-based, right? That's the, that's the external expression of the company. So what I'm trying to do is understand why the person will make the choice they make to choose my company or my competitor's company and what things they're thinking through on their quote unquote customer journey. Sometimes there is no customer journey. I mean, some things are really long consideration and sometimes it's just I'm walking past a bar and I walk in because it's four o'clock and it's hot and I'd like to have something cold to drink. Mm -hmm. So what I look at in the book is a lot of different ways that companies that have figured out a, a repeatable pattern for how to talk to their core customers. So the example that I use a lot is like Peloton is a really good example of understanding who their customer is and who their customer is not. And they're not shy about elbowing those people out of the way and going, no, no, not you. Not you. We don't want to talk to you. We want to talk to that guy over there or that lady over there. She's got the money that we need to have to, to pay for this expensive bike and, and do the workouts. So it's a different behavior and a different set than somebody who's looking to go to crunch fitness and do a $29 a month deal. It's just, mm -hmm. they both have the same sort of the, on paper, you would say both of those things are the same end goal fitness, but the Peloton rider is a much different customer than crunch fitness or anytime fitness or, you know, kind of a discount person. Right. So it's like the insight of why that's so important to them versus, versus the other path they could take or the multiple other paths they could take for fitness. You don't even have to belong to a gym, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and uh, to your point, I mean, Peloton does a good job at it. You don't ever, like every excite, every excite bike, every exercise bike that I've had, excite bike shows my age, Nintendo, right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. I've played. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I don't know what dust I shook off in my brain there for that one, but. The young folk that are listening will have to go Google Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> But every exercise bike that I've ever had has been in my basement. Not yet. Right. I've not yet once seen a Peloton commercial that hasn't had a big bay window with some forest or some city overlooking. Like it just. 2000%. It's ridiculous where they put it in the prime spot where it's like in the living room. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's how I know their branding is working because I can see the backlash to it online where people make these jokes about you know, using your primary display space for your bike and who's the customer, like rich jerks. And, and you start to see this and it's like, well, kind of like they, they know exactly who their audience is. So there's a natural reaction from people that are outside that group to say, well, I'm not in that group. And that's, that's good. That actually, that, I mean, I don't think anybody likes negative sentiment uh, as they're looking through their reports, but it's not their customer that's saying that their customers are all very happy and, and stay engaged in the, uh, in the service. So when, you explore these brands and how they have identified their customers real tactful, even like how can we then go ahead and apply the same thing and get to understand our customers as well? Yeah, no, no. And in fact, in, in underthink it, I do a, um, underthink it has a whole chapter on creating personas and it's meant to be done at a, at a grand, you know, corporate level. So a, a brand persona that is for customer types that are archetypical, but, in the book, in the first chapter, the introduction, I lay out personas that I created for who are the personas for that book. And it's three very specific people that I kind of amalgamated with very little data that are like, this one's a junior planner who's trying to get training, but doesn't have, doesn't want to ask permission or get the, um, you know, get the funding from her agency. This one is a director of planning 
who has to find training for his team to upskill them, but doesn't know where to go. That, that's why I even wrote the book. You know, so I created those personas and I encourage anybody that's starting a business to do the same thing, to, to write out, you know, what is the, what does your customer look like and what makes them different and, and really, really put thought into what things I like. I'm obsessed with index brands when it comes to competitive. So I would say, like, if we go back to Peloton, I could pick, if we talked about what car they drive or what kind of snacks are in their closet. If I give you four or five dimensions like that, you will go, oh, okay, I know exactly who that person is. Do that with your own freelance customers or your other customers you're trying to woo as you're building a business of like, oh, no, no, they wouldn't drive a Mazda, but they would drive an American, you know, make. They would drive a GMC or a Ford for sure. I know who this person is. Like, I, just a couple of dimensions and you start to really get a picture of who you're talking to and better yet, who you are not talking to. That'll save you a ton of time and money. Because that's where we burn a lot of energy as as uh, consultants. Yeah, and and I know that you have pointed it out that what you are not is just as as important as what you are. Right? I'm a big fan of it. Like once I got over the hurdle, and the and the hurdle was really just my own mind ego. of saying I have it. I have it too. <laughs> of essentially saying no to people. Like even though somebody's yeah. willing to hand you money today to do the work. You're like, nope, like I can't take that because we're not going to be a good fit. Yeah, it's not a fit. But you know what I do in, in those scenarios when people approach me and, or, you know, and say, hey, I want you to, I want to engage you to do X. I will connect them to someone who I think can do it better. Or, you know what I mean? I, it's not no, right. it's like it's redirection mostly. If, if, and, and I'm doing that because in the long run, my reputation is more important in, than taking the, the project and not doing a great job at it. Or if I'm really busy or they asked me to speak about something and I'm like, well, that's not really my area, but here's, here's five people I know that can speak on that better than I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it works a little better. I mean, and that, that's all a part of the sales process. I call it a more of a conversation and I always just take anytime I have one with somebody brand new, I always, my mantra is I want to leave them in a better place than they found me. And so if it's with me, great. If it's not with me, great. You know, I'm okay with either one. I want them to be comfortable knowing that at least they're on the path to where they need to be. Um, and there are plenty of times where I just say, hey, look, I'm not the right guy for you. Here's somebody else or here's three other people or here's a service or here's a book or, and, and, and take it from there. So, so yeah. I'm definitely, definitely on board with that. So for, for you listeners, again, it's, the book is called Specific, uh, How Brands Draw Inspiration, from a world that doesn't want anymore. And Adam, how did you come up with that subtitle? Because I mean, obviously there's, you hear it all the time, like there's more information out there than ever before in the human race, in the entire like timeline of humans, right? Being yeah. put out every single day. You're putting more information out there. How are you, yeah, how are you also, <laughs> how are you creating that, cracking that nut, even though you're telling people, Hey, don't, you know, I know you don't want this, but here you go. Yeah. I, well, that's, I've had that thought, that ironic thought of like, well, I'm saying there's, we're an overloaded with information and here's a 240 page book. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, so it, it, I think it's a good read because it's like a, uh, I describe it as like a Tarantino movie where it's all these random threads that don't seem to make sense until you get halfway through. And then all of a sudden it gets connected. The, I started it and I wrote about 30,000 words that I discarded. Most of it ended up being a couple of blog posts and some other stuff that 
because it was too much a, a treatise on information overload that didn't have any valuable outputs to it. But I was very interested in the, the way we're taking in information, we're watching tons of stuff. Like you said it yourself, every hour on YouTube, there's like a million hours of video uploaded. It's some crazy number. And the book came about from just my own rejection of, I'm so skeptical, I'm so full, I think is the right word. I don't need a, another brand of soda or I don't need another brand of pretty much anything. Like what, what need do you have that you need a new product to solve. You don't know until you see like something really clever or something really different or something that really speaks to you at that exact right time and hits that specific point. I see, I work in the advertising industry and I just see so much video and ads and case studies and examples of this something that wins a titanium at Crown. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody watched that. Like nobody went to the store and bought that soda because of that video. It's, it's nobody's, engaging with that stuff. So what's the point of it? Specific is really, hey, we're overloaded. These are ways that you can try to break through and follow these models. Like um, if a romantic comedy comes out, I know who will be at the theater and so does the studio and so does the theater. Know what trailers to put in front of that thing to get them to come again. Because romantic comedies have not changed over 25 years or 30. It's the same formula every single time. They're telling a story for a specific audience and that specific audience hears the siren song and they come and they're happy. They leave happy. It's a, it's a great win-win for everybody. But if you try to recruit a bunch of um, like MMA fans to see that rom-com, you're going to get a different output in that theater because they're, they're not going to be happy and they're not going to swoon when Jennifer Aniston kisses the guy at the end of the movie. You know what right, I mean? Right. Yeah. So. I mean, and, and really what it comes down to is specializing and niching down. I mean, the title of the book is specific, right? That's it. And that's how you grow. And it's, I found it in my own business. You know, a lot of the feast community members of my membership site, same thing that, I mean, that's the membership site is built on specialization, building predictable income through specialization. Of course. Have you had conversations with people who say, and, and a lot of the examples that you've cited so far, Obviously, they're targeting a specific customer and they're essentially saying no to everybody else, even if that somebody else could use that service or product. Yeah. How do you overcome the fear of leaving money on the table or missing out or whatever other cliche you want to say? You know, I don't, I don't really handle that in the book, but it, that is really a matter of comfort and self-awareness, I think. You know, that, that's more like self-consciousness that the money may not come later. That comes with confidence of knowing that you've built a business and you're doing things right and you're good enough at what you're doing to say, no, no, I can pass on this because something else will come through the door and I know who my customer is. I think that's, that's more a part of it. When I was younger, I would probably jump at anybody who called me to do any kind mm -hmm. of freelance work, right? Mm -hmm. But now I'm like, well, I don't really, I don't want to do that. That's not interesting to me. I'm going to introduce you to somebody or, you know, it's not based on money. Sometimes it's just based on what's interesting as a project. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea that fear of leaving money on the table is a very real thing. I don't mean to minimize it. Um, but I think over time you get a confidence in your client list and in your ability and in your skill to, to go and gin things up that are more interesting to you or more lucrative if that's what you're chasing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I felt the same way now. I mean, I have a two-year-old son and another one, another baby on the way. We don't know what it is yet, but Congrats, thanks. Man, that's awesome. thanks. Um, but for me, it was like, as soon as he was born, 
It was like, for one, it was like this hyper focus. Like, like, I don't know what I was doing beforehand. Like I must, I felt like scattered, but it's like, if somebody comes across my plate, like I literally evaluate it. Like, is this taking time away from me playing with him outside or, you know, like, is it worth it? Right. Absolutely. And so we talk about confidence and things like that, but like, sometimes it's just like you knowing what your goals are, your objectives are, and you know, not just from a business perspective, but also from a personal perspective. And if you're a small business, you might be the sole owner of a small business. Maybe it's just yourself or five people or whatever it could be. But what your 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 mission is, as specific as that is, is you're pushing that down to your customers, your projects, yep. whoever else you might be serving. And so to the point there, it's, it's, it's definitely a mindset thing that you have to get over. And it's really, I think you're, you're, you're spot on there in that, like, it's definitely a confidence thing to know that, Hey, yeah, I might be passing on this good opportunity. Maybe something else will come across the line, but if not, that's cool too. Right. Yeah. I think it's a state of mind that, that you have to get to. And that comes with time. And that, that comes when you have to remind yourself when things are going really well, that, hey, there's going to be a time down the road where it's not going to be going as well. And I have to remember that I was able to get it to the speed. And what, it, what was I doing when I was really clicking on all cylinders to be able to do that? Um, but I do think it's a, it's, a confidence. it's a confidence thing. So I'm curious, when you, when you were talking about the personas and you're saying, okay, this person drives a Mazda versus something else, how important is it when you're building out these customers, right? And you assume that they have this type of a car or whatever, or they buy this certain type of soda or whatever. Would you advise that as you start getting customers and things of that nature to then go ahead and say, hey, what does your life look like? And how would you yeah. do that? Yeah, I wouldn't, I, like, I don't believe, I love data. And when, if it, let's say I only had four customers, that's not going to be a huge sample, but it's hundred percent of my data. If I did ask them and send them a survey or go meet at their office and just pay attention to what the office looks like. So yeah, I would recommend asking those questions. You could do it over a survey. You know, you could do it over with a survey monkey or something free type form, you know, and it doesn't have to be a 70 question survey that's written by a data scientist. It could be something that's really lo-fi that just asks them, Hey, I'm trying to get to know my customers and what makes them tick. If you're in professional services, the brand of soda doesn't matter as much, obviously. Uh, but there are questions like what kind of software, what kind of computers they use, and what, you know, what, what platforms they choose. They choose uh, Office Live or Google Docs. You know, there's things that are indicators of how they think and how they use technology or how they solve business problems that can help inform how you can work with them better and if there's any commonality. And then the question is like, well, how far do you go? Mm -hmm. How much do you really need to know, right? How granular? That was my next question, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, because I, I read your mind, <laughs> but you, you go until you have an insight. You go until you have something meaningful that you go, oh, okay, that'll help me. Like now I understand that. I know how to, how to leverage that thing and figure out why I'm valuable in that case. Then you stop. And then when you're, when you're leveled off again and you're looking for the next wave, you can go a little deeper. If you move from, you know, if you're, uh, clients change over and you end up with five new clients or a whole new book, then you could do it again and figure out how it's changed over time and how your services have changed over time. Mm, yeah. I, I love that. I mean, I think people sometimes send out these surveys and they think they have to have some switch, like some revelation out of the answers that is going to hockey stick their growth and all that. And like anytime I've ever sent a survey, 
the information that I get back, one, it's useful, sometimes expected. And then other times there is that left field thing. I'm like, oh, I never even thought about that. But that's good to know. Yeah, that's the, the left field thing is usually the more telling thing. But also, you know, you, you have to put garbage in, garbage out. So if you, if you take the right amount of time thinking through what you're asking and why, you're going to end up with better results like right away. You're going to see things, not hockey stick. It's all going to be an evolution, I think. But you'll see a change. You'll see the, the insight that will lead to a change for sure. And it'll be pretty clear to you. If, if you've thought those questions out. Yeah. I, and <laughs> to your point, I, my very first survey was very like, Hey, I want to send out a survey. I wrote something up in a half an hour and sent it out. And then I got back and I was just like, I don't know if anything of this is useful. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you learn through trial and error. Right. So don't be afraid to, to make a mistake and get better each time. Right. 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 Yeah. So this, first of all, this, this has been an outstanding conversation. Uh, I mean, I I know I've gotten a ton out of it and I'm definitely going to put some of these things into practice. Some of these (laughs) things like I have been in business now for myself for just about a decade. And like, I'm still learning all of these kind of things and learning, learning more about that kind of stuff. Before I let you go, what's up next in the next six, 12 months? For me, uh, I'm not writing any more books. I vow no more books. I'm not, you told, you said it, man. We're overwhelmed with information. We don't need any more. Up for me is really just thinking more about this and uh, trying, to, trying to help people understand it, trying to help people connect to what they love. And, and uh, I got a lot of help writing this book from, uh, I put out a call to have people help me kind of read through it and give me feedback. And I had about 50 people from around the world that logged into a Google Doc and gave me crazy notes from, you know, very encouraging to like, this is garbage. What are you talking about? Which I, I loved. And uh, while once I saw the first chapter with all those notes from people, I, volunt- I vowed to help other people. So I've read a couple books myself and I'm trying to do that same thing over the next couple of years if you know someone that's working on a project or has something they're trying to get out of their head into the world, I'm trying to help however I can, whether it's reviewing it, giving feedback or connecting them to someone, anything short of funding the thing. I have two kids too, so can't, can't be doing that in college. Uh, but uh, time I can, I can make to read things and, and help. So I've done a few books already helping people and giving them notes and it's, it's a little bit, but it's something, mm-hmm. you know, and looking for new ways to do that. That's awesome. So, and I, I want to be mindful of your time, but what gave you that idea to say, okay, I'm writing the first chapter and I'm going to let the world see it? I have no idea, to be honest with you. I wrote, like I said, I wrote about 30,000 words, which, which I think is longer than my first book. And I read, I read through it and I was just like, ah, this is, this is too, it doesn't get to a conclusion. So I, I wrote the next book. I actually wrote everything except the conclusion. I rewrote it and I just started sharing it one chapter at a time. I'm not sure where I got the idea to do it. When I wrote my first book, I wrote it inside an agency that helped me publish Mm -hmm. it. Uh, And so I had a team that was like our PR team was helping edit it and they were taking turns reading it and giving me notes. And I think I just wanted a panel. I wanted different types of people. So I just posted on LinkedIn and Twitter just to see who would respond. And the the array of people I got was like, oh, like some of these people are in strategy and some of these people are in digital and this person's a teacher. And this person, I don't know what they do, but they're going to read it and give me good notes or give me even confusion from someone who's outside the industry is helpful to me. It's, then it means I could be clearer. 
in the way I'm phrasing things or what I need to explain or where I need to add footnotes. So it was a very beneficial outcome for me. I mean, I think the book was made better, but really the experience of, of getting those notes kind of made me more comfortable putting the book out in the world too. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. I never heard of anybody doing that before, but yeah, I mean, that's just like, <laughs> I guess that I'd love to see the trail, the history trail of that Google no, doc. I mean, it's probably miles long at this point. It, there was a lot of comments and a lot of back and forth. So yeah, it was split over a lot of different docs too. So I wonder if I could even compile them into a single thing, like a director's commentary type deal. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> be like, it'd be the longest CVS receipt ever. Just through uh, comments. I probably wouldn't be as long as my typical CVS receipt, but yeah, it would still be pretty long. Right. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Adam, for all of your insights and, and definitely go check out the book. We'll put the link in the show notes. You could get it on Amazon, basically wherever you get your books normally. You could go get, go ahead and do so. Uh, Adam, where can people reach out and say thanks? Definitely the best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at a Pierno, just first initial last name. Uh, that's the best way to get in touch with me. I will respond to you pretty much right away if, if you tweet me because I'm addicted. <laughs> You're getting all that information. <laughs> that's all it. Right. I'm overloaded. All right. Thanks. Thanks again, Adam. This was a pleasure of mine. And for everybody else out there, until next time, it's your time to live in the feast. Insight and context of who your client is has been the biggest differentiator for me and my business. Without that, I wouldn't have the word established in my elevator pitch. That's a wrap for season five. In about four weeks, season six, which has already a few episodes recorded, will be released. I am super excited for this season. The theme this time is pricing. We'll be talking about pricing in ways that well, you may not have yet thought about models like pay what you want. We'll also talk about how to build profits into your pricing, what to think about when it comes down to figuring out what your price is, and obviously how to get yourself out from under that hourly rate race to the bottom. Until then, it's your time to live in the feast.